My Nourish Balance Thrive supplement line has finally arrived. I am so excited to share them with you all. I have been taking the products for months now to test them first. And now that they are here for you, I want to share with you my favorite product of all of them. They're all really amazing. But this one is the Nourish Liver Support. We talk about toxicity a lot on the pod from our food and our environment to the air that we breathe and the water that we drink. And as you've heard me say, if we're not getting rid of toxins, on a daily basis, they're going to store in certain areas of your body, kind of think of it being stored in your fat. So as I've told so many of my patients over the years, if they're struggling with weight loss, one reason could be an overburdened body because you just got so many extra toxins being stored in the fat and your body won't release that fat. So we've got to be able to help filter the stuff out and your liver is a filter. So the Nourish Liver Support, I absolutely love. You can check it out at drlisao.com. Click on shop or just click the link below. I want to introduce you to my newest product, Balance Tea in my Nourish Balance Thrive line. What is Balance Tea? This is balancing out testosterone. It might just be the supplement that you've been missing in your entire routine. Ladies, I don't want you to freak out thinking this is only for men. This is also for you. We need testosterone in the right amounts to promote lean, sexy muscle. So if you are realizing you're doing your workouts, you're not really gaining muscle mass, you can't figure out what's going on, you might want this product. So I absolutely love it. I noticed a huge change in my workouts immediately after I started testing it out. So check it out. Grab a bottle for you. Grab a bottle for your hubby. You're going to love it. Click the link below. Otherwise, DrLisaO.com and then click on the shop button. An ironic media production. Visit us at I-R-O-N-I-C-K media.com. Hey there, Rockstar. I'm so glad you're here. I know you've been struggling for a while, trying to figure out why things just aren't changing. I've been there. I get you. I see you. I know how hard you're trying. I'm here to let you know that there's light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm here to teach you the simple steps to becoming that healthy, vibrant, best version of you. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back. We've got another episode of You and Me, and I want to talk a little bit about the history of keto. I hope you guys are loving these episodes. Um, I am getting amazing feedback from them. I never thought I would just do like one-on-one episodes of just you and me, but uh, y'all are sending me some really great information. So we're just going to continue. And it's one of those things. I never know how the podcast, like what we're going to do or how we're going to go with this. But again, simple steps, like we are here to make healthy living simple. So if you have a little bit of understanding, if I give you a 20 or 30 minute episode, and just give you some simple basics. I find that again, it's going to make not just that whole transition easier, but it gives you the why as to why you're doing this instead of, Hey, somebody told me to do this keto thing. When you understand the science behind it and why it's so beneficial, then it just makes everything overall easier. Right? So I want to talk about keto because I find a lot of times this is what happened. Gosh, let me be 2015, 2016, when I started really talking about keto with my patients, I had been talking paleo with them, actually just like following a whole food, like how our ancestors ate diet, doing a nutrition plan. 
um, eliminating dairy. We did all of that probably from the early 2000s on. And then, as you know, like about 2010-ish, I would say keto, or I'm sorry, paleo became that big buzzword. And so then 2015, 2016 came around and people started looking at me saying, oh, so now you got, went from paleo to keto. And I was like, no, let's go back to how I've always been teaching you to eat. We've been looking at a lower carbohydrate diet. We've been looking at a paleolithic ancestral diet. Um, so really it's the same thing, but the fact is it's all about words, right? Semantics. So had I told people when I first opened my practice in the early 2000s, like, Hey, we're going to do keto and ketosis. People would have looked at me and said, well, you're doing Atkins. Like I've done that, you know, did that once didn't work or, or whatever it was. So people have these, um, I mean, it's no fault, right? Like we, we do it, we do it for everything. We think we know what it is based off of, of the word that we had an experience with. So I know keto gosh, 2016, 2017, 2018, it took over the Google search engines, like the number one search nutrition plan. Uh, prior to that, it had been paleo and it just, it, it's always changing, right? But here's the reality. There is a long history of ketogenic nutrition, diets, et cetera, over the last several hundred years. But it's not just that. Like ketosis is our body's natural way of how we adapt when we enter a fasting state, whether intentional during our current time periods with an overabundance of food, or whether it was unintentional during conditions with our paleolithic ancestors with a lack of food. Fasting is nothing new whether it's spiritual, whether for religious reasons, whether it's a ritual, whether it's ethical or for health benefits, people have chosen to abstain from food and drink for years. So in the fifth century BC, Hippocrates, the Greek physician re referenced fasting for health benefits. My God, Hippocrates referenced so many things. I'm just thinking he talked about looking to the spine for the cause of disease. Like there's so much stuff. I was on a podcast the other day where somebody referenced Hippocrates for something else, like looking to the gut for the cause of disease. And I was like, dude, he said that's about the spine too. So maybe we all need to research like really what Hippocrates said. But we know the Bible references fasting as well. So many times when we're talking about keto nutrition, the general public, like I just said, we associate keto with Robert Atkins. And yes, he was a huge advocate of low carb in his lifetime, but he didn't initially start the low carb craze, right? Like it did not start with Robert Atkins. Some of the early forefathers of keto nutrition or low carbohydrate diets date back to the 1800s. So there was, and I am going to slaughter these names. You guys know that I slaughter names, unfortunately, like you'd think with the name of Olszewski, I'd be able to pronounce a lot of different things, but, um, there is a, a Jean Riant Savant, I don't know, of France. He wrote a book in 1825 named the physiology of taste. So that's the 1800s out of France, right? It was here that he correlated starch, carbohydrates, starch, carbohydrates, sugar with excess weight. However, it really wasn't him that gained the popularity. It was an obese undertaker from England appears to have more recognition through history regarding weight loss and lower carb diets. William Banting struggled with his weight. And after following the advice of Dr. William Harvey, he finally had success with managing his weight an undertaker, right? So Dr. Harvey recommended eliminating starch, sugar, beer, and butter. If you're living in England, 
think of the foods, right? So, so he eliminated starch, sugar, beer, and butter after listening to a diabetes management lecture by Claude Bernard. So if you know Claude Bernard, a French uh, physiologist, he was best known for the basis of what was called homeostasis by Walter Bradford Cannon. So it was the stability of the internal environment is the condition for the free and independent life. So uh, um, there were all sorts of stuff of, of Claude Bernard. There's a whole nother thing with Louis Pasteur. There's a whole story there, right? Um, why we pasteurize milk. So they both had some, this is me going back to some of my microbiology days uh, in school and undergrad and grad school, but uh, Bernard and uh, Pasteur were friends, I believe. And Pasteur was like, it's germs. It all causes disease. And Bernard said, mm -hmm. it is the condition of the host that caused the disease. So think of what we're experiencing now. Like, are we healthy? Like, how is our environment? Who gets sick? Who does not? Is it the host? Is it the germs? What causes disease? Oh, there's so many things there. So anyways, Banting, this undertaker, ended up eating a low-carbohydrate diet consisting of meat, of fruit, of greens, and dry wine. Go figure. Dry wine. Dry wine. Red wine. He finally had success with weight loss, and he felt the need to write an open letter to the public, and he called it a letter on corpulence addressed to the public in 1863. So it was his personal testimony, and it was basically a pamphlet. However, it sold thousands of copies over the years. The name Banting became associated with dieting during that time and is still associated with dieting even today, the Banting diet, right? So as Banting gained a reputation for weight loss, several decades later in the early 20th century, the physiological effects of fasting started to become known. So French physicians, uh, uh, goodness, again, I'll, we'll slaughter these names. Guapa and Marie reported on starvation, fasting, and the resulting in decreased seizures in epileptic patients. This is when you start to hear about keto and the benefits of epilepsy. So it was a strict, it was just strictly a report. However, it lacked details. In the United States, though, there was a man at the forefront of this movement and he was a very unlikely person at that. And his name was Benar McFadden. You guys, I love this story because this is based out of Michigan, out of Battle Creek, Michigan, just west of where I am located here, just west of Ann Arbor. Um, I'm in Chelsea, Michigan. So uh, Benar McFadden was known as the father of physical culture. He was born in Missouri. He lost both of his parents by the age of 11 and had physical challenges that he was determined to overcome. And he gravitated toward physical fitness. Uh, he grew an empire on physical fitness. So he claimed to have ill effects from chi a childhood vaccine, and he spoke out against the medical community. He published the first man, uh, magazine on physical fitness in 1898. It was physical development in England, then physical culture in 1899 in the United States. Um, this guy was pretty well known, and he was kind of taboo, I'll be honest with you. But it was the rapid growth of this magazine that allowed McFadden to become known as this health guru in the United States. So physical culture magazine grew to a circulation of over a hundred thousand monthly readers by 1903. And again, 
put yourself back in 1903. If you're looking at a physical culture magazine on fitness, probably very taboo. Um, He wrote articles considered scandalous at the time. McFadden did advocate healthy living through diet and exercise. He demonstrates his beliefs with pictures of himself. So probably some little arrogance there too. By the end of World War I, he had a circulation of over half a million for his magazines just in the United States. Um, His reputation continued to grow, his confidence saying that he could cure almost any disease and help other people reach over 100 years old increased. He believed that he would live to be at least 100 and live to be at least 125 years old with his regime. He included walking barefoot to work in the city right? So think about that grounding. He felt that any issue could be reversed with a healthy lifestyle and advocated this natural lifestyle. It included a regimen of diet and exercise. He incorporated time periods of fasting from three days to three weeks. He also encouraged avoiding the toxicity of alcohol and tobacco products and added in regular time in the sunshine. Ah, right? Like these are the, oh my goodness. McFadden's belief with fasting was that when decreasing your food to zero, like your intake of food to zero, your body would not have to expend energy to digest food. Therefore, it could use that energy to heal. Bernard McFadden, folks. He became widely known and started to open recuperative healing centers. Uh, The first one was 50 miles north of New York City in Hudson, New York. In 1907, he opened the Bernard McFadden Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, the Center for Natural Health at that time period. For those of you that are in Michigan, you know exactly what Battle Creek now is known for as of the Kellogg's Serial City, right? Um, But McFadden Sanitarium uh, competed with Kellogg's Sanitarium at that time period that was also in Battle Creek, Michigan. He later moved the sanitarium from Battle Creek to Chicago. And he called it a healthatorium, but it was his Battle Creek Sanitarium that treated hundreds of thousands of people and numerous relationships with Bernard McFadden stemmed. One such friendship was with the author, and you guys probably have heard this one before, but of Upton Sinclair, right? Upton Sinclair, he visited Battle, uh, the Battle Creek Sanitarium, that location for treatment. He became an advocate of McFadden and wrote the book, The Fasting Cure in 1911, that really helped to popularize McFadden's agenda of health. Then, as the story goes, Hugh Conklin, who was a director of osteopathy, was McFadden's assistant in Battle Creek and followed that same health philosophy. So Conklin started fasting on many ailments, including epilepsy. It was Conklin who became the first to start reporting his results on fasting in the United States. An endocrinologist in New York, Dr. Rawls Guilin, was exposed to Conklin's work with fasting, and he started applying it to his network as well. His young cousin had uncontrolled epileptic seizures for years. And with the use of phenobarbital and bromides prescribed by neurologists, um, he was still dealing with these seizures. So his cousin saw Dr. Conklin in Battle Creek, Michigan, and the seizures stopped. 
obviously with being prescribed fasting. Conklin's routine had the child fast for several months. After two days of fasting, the seizures stopped and What's the secret to your hair, Dr. Lisa? I get that question so much. And what I have changed recently is using my Nourish Collagen Peptides from the Nourish Balance Thrive line. As you know, before I ever put my name on anything, I test it out for months. And so therefore, I have been using this product for a long time before it ever became available to you guys. Why am I loving this product so much more than any other ones that I've ever used? A, this is grass-fed collagen. So if you are dealing with post-COVID hair loss, if you are dealing with a Hashimoto's diagnosis or a hypo or just low thyroid diagnosis and you're losing your hair, or maybe you're noticing your hair just isn't as thick as it used to be when you were in your 20s, right? There's so many of us noticing that. You might want to add some collagen into your routine. And the Nourish Collagen Peptides is from grass-fed cows, so you're going to love that. You're not going to get all the nasty hormones or whatever else that might be in conventional products. I am always looking for the cleanest source available. What else? If you're looking in the mirror and you're noticing those laugh lines, or if you can pinch your skin and it doesn't like rebound back as fast as it used to, that means the elasticity of your skin just isn't there and we want to rebuild it, nourish it so it can thrive, right? So the Nourish Collagen Peptides will do just that. And obviously as a chiropractor, I love this because it is good for your joint health as well. So Nourish Collagen Peptides has type 1 and type 3 collagen peptides in it, which are great for, like I said, hair, skin, and nails. So if you are dealing with laugh lines or thinning hair or creaky joints, you're going to want to grab a container of the Nourish Collagen Peptides. You can mix it into your smoothies, into your coffee. You can mix it into like your brownies if you're eating that drlisao.com, click the shop link or click the link below. Did not return in, until the follow-up or did not return at the follow-up. That was two years later. So after this doctor saw his cousin's results, as well as all these other patients that Conklin's had, uh, Grayland decided to incorporate fasting with a larger sample size to determine the results on epilepsy. So again, we have always heard about keto and epilepsy, and this is where it came from. So in 1921, he shared his results of the study of 30 patients at the American Medical Association Convention based on a 20-day fast. A 20-day fast, 87% of patients were seizure-free. Uh, he concluded his report stating that for, further research would obviously be needed, but he was the first person to really document brain clarity with fasting, something that is widely known now, right? Widely talked about with keto nutrition, but it wasn't at that time in the early 1900s. He stated, and I'm going to quote this, when one wanted to turn a clouded mentality to a clear one, it could almost be done with fasting. So the effects of the keto diet on development and behavior preliminary report of a prospective study was what was, was coming about of all of this. So as these doctors researched the effects of fasting, the mechanism of how the body responded the way that it did was still unknown. Like we knew we were getting results, right? Like this is what was happening, but they didn't understand why they didn't understand why the body was producing ketones during these fasting periods. They did not know that yet. 
McFadden believed that when decreasing the amount of food taken in, or when you were fasting, the energy the body would have to use to digest the food was going to be used for healing. So that's kind of where that theory went. But this is what led to his bold claims of fasting being being able to hear just just about everything, right? Like that was what he was saying. But Conklin had a high success rate with fasting and a decrease in epileptic seizures, especially in kids. So his treatment included 18 to 25 days of fasting. Like imagine trying to do this with your kids, right? Or to the level of toleration of that person. So in kids less than 10 years old, he claimed a 90% success rate, 80% success rate in 10 to 15 year old kids. As the age of the kid increased or the patient increased, he saw a lower percentage of those seeing success with a decrease in their seizures. So for like 25 or I'm sorry, 15 to 25 year olds, he reported a 65% quote unquote cure rate, 50% in 25 to 40 and very low percentages in 40 year olds. So Conklin, who obviously followed the same thought process as McFadden, believed that toxins were eliminated from the tissues, went into the bloodstream. They were eliminated during a fast. He believed that these conditions like epilepsy were kind of intestinal epilepsy. So he thought they were rooted in the gut. His theory was that seizures occurred um, with the release of a toxin that was stored in the, actually in the pyrus glands within the intestine. So he thought that when the toxin would release, the lymphatic system would absorb it, then release it during varying times causing that seizure. That was his theory. Again, we're going back over a hundred years ago. So it was this thought that influence other researchers, like their ideas on the mechanism of epilepsy and why starving basically a patient in essence would decrease the seizures. Throughout this time period, Conklin's work was what fueled other researchers to also look into fasting and seizure. And finally, what led into the discovery of ketones and the body burning fat as its primary source of fuel during a fasting time period. So the initial doctor that started the community looking toward the actual mechanism of fasting was Guylin, like the Raul Guylin, when he spoke to the American Medical Association Convention in 1921. When he shared his results from fasting patients with seizures, he noted the highest urinary acid excretion in those patients with the greatest results. So looking at this, now start thinking about ketone bodies, right? In 1922, then... W.G. Lennox and Dr. Stanley Cobb started studying five separate patients to determine why fasting had results for epileptic patients. So now we're trying to find like, this is when we're getting to the meat and potatoes of this, right? Like why did this work? They performed studies on varying lengths. So the longest was two weeks. During these studies, they measured both urine and blood in both control as well as subjects, right? So we've got both of them going this time. They found an increase in serum uric acid and acidosis, especially after two to three days of fasting. This all kind of makes sense. They noted a decrease in seizures at the same time. So when they broke the fast with carbohydrates or protein, like purine free protein, the serum uric acid and acidosis would be excreted through the urine. However, it did not, did not excrete through urine. Should the fast be broken with a fat, they were using 40% cream. So at the conclusion of the study, Lennox noted that the biochemical changes of the body and being able to control the seizures through the manipulation of blood chemistry, 
He stated, and I'm quoting this, initiation of the use of bromides in 1857 and of phenobarbital in 1912 had demonstrated that the chemical action of these sedative drugs could lessen seizures. The third decade of the 12th century witnessed a measure of control through a change of body metabolism. Simple absence of food or depth of carbohydrate in the body forced the body to burn acid forming fat. And I unquote. So holy moly, right? Like this is when they started to realize ketones were a big deal. So it was after this that the research grew to an even greater extent, trying to determine what caused the body to respond the way that it did to fasting. This was the beginning of what we now know as ketosis. So about a hundred years, folks, like this is when we started finding it. At the same time period, another researcher started studying how the body adapted with diabetes right? 1921 is Chicago endocrinologist, Dr. Roland Woodyot noticed that fasting cleared glucose in patients, even those with diabetes. He also noted acetic acid, acetone, and beta hydroxybutyrate levels increased with starvation as well as in a lower carbohydrate or high fat diet. Like, can you imagine being these studies where you're like, we're just going to starve you. Like we're sitting here talking about intermittent fasting now, and I'm trying to help people get to 12 hours of intermittent fasting or 14 or 16 or 18. Imagine walking in saying, we're going to starve you for a couple of weeks. Like I'm shocked people signed up, but I guess if you're in that tire straight, you're going to do it. Right. So as anyone studying ketosis in, in this day and age knows there are three ketone bodies, the body produces in ketosis. But this doctor hypothesized that these were the results of oxidizing fatty acids. So in the absence of glucose, right? So basically that's what's happening, folks. Like that's, it's literally what's happening. He felt that fasting as well as these dietary changes allowed the pancreas time to rest and in essence heal. God, I love how everybody talks about just healing the organs, like resting and healing versus like, we're always just over going on everything anymore. So meanwhile, Research continued. Keto diet, as we now know it, came to be named by a man named Russell Wilder. He was up at Mayo Clinic. He continued to study the benefits of fasting, but achieving the benefits through diet, um, he realized that ketone bodies would be produced when carbohydrates decreased within the tissues. So it was him that believed that, the, that it was dietary modifications could have as much of a benefit for patients as fasting, especially with those experiencing seizures. So again, everything started out with fasting, obviously restricting carbohydrates, but it was this man that said, what if we just cut the carbs? What if we continue with good protein, good fats, just cut the carbs? So he stated in quotes, it is impossible to draw conclusions from the results of these few patients treated with high fat diets, but we have here a method of observing, of observing the effects of ketosis on the epileptic. If this is the mechanism responsible for the beneficial effect of fasting, it may be possible to substitute for that rather brutal procedure, a dietary therapy, which the patient can follow with little inconvenient and continue at home as seems necessary. Because again, imagine being a doctor telling your patient you have to fast indefinitely, like you're not going to get a lot of great results. So here he's saying we can do high fat diets, 
low carb, we can achieve the same results. So now people can go home. They can actually continue managing their seizures. So, so many doctors started jumping aboard. They were recommending this to their pediatric patients, especially there were so many people. It was Marnie Peterman was the first doctor that reported a specific ratio of macros. We will, you know, we talk macros. Now we go through different macro compositions for each different body type. We do all of that stuff. But in 1924, he figured out that 10 to 15 grams of carb or one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight and the remaining of fat that would keep them in a state of ketosis and manage their epileptic seizures. This was back again, a hundred years ago, like 1924. So he saw a change in seizures with kids, but he also saw changes in focus and alertness and overhaul behavior. He noted, and this is quoted, the mental development has been normal in all patients and exceptionally good in seven of the 22 who are now free from attacks. In all the children treated with ketogenic diet, there was a marked change in character, all sorts of amazingness. You guys, a decrease in irritability and an increased interest in alertness. The children slept better. They were more easily disciplined. The action of the diet warrants further study. A hundred years ago, it warrants further study. This was Marnie Peterman basically in his writings in 1925. So it continued. All these studies continued through the 1920s in the United States. So Massachusetts General Hospital continued to study the effects of fasting and then later keto. And then they studied epilepsy as well. There was another one in 1926. There was a textbook by Talbo, Talbot that was... Um, uh, it was, that was in 1930. He's the one that determined the best results happened when the diet composition was four to one. So as research continues, all of these different periods of ketosis were noted throughout the time period. And a correlation was found in helping seizures with epileptic children. They happened more often in early morning hours, which correlated with the time period when ketone bodies were less than in other time periods of the day. They actually up at Mayo Clinic customize each ketogenic nutrition plan with the patient to help them reach optimal levels of ketosis. Imagine if we did this in medicine today, right? The keto diet played a huge role in the treatment of epilepsy for decades. Research continued through the 1930s, but what changed? What changed? Medicine changed. By 1938, a new era had dawned. There was a drug. And it is a whole lot easier to take a pill than to change your nutrition. And I think that sums up everything in America now, right? It is so much easier to pop a pill, a pill than to live healthy. Unfortunately, if we don't live healthy, that has ramifications later on down the road. And that's why our typical, you know, geriatric patient walks in with not just one or two meds, they hand me list of medications. And that is common in modern day America. It is easier to take a pill. It is cheaper to take a pill than it is to actually live healthy. So here is I am talking to you all because you are my generation or you're younger than me, right? Like, here's the reality. I don't have probably a lot of 80 and 90 year olds listening to our podcast. So I want you to think of where will you be 
in another 10, 20, 30, or 40 years down the road if you don't change anything. And know that you can absolutely change everything. And all it takes is one little simple step. That's all it is. I am not asking you to fast for days. <laughs> I am just saying, stop eating dinner or stop eating when you're done eating dinner. Like stop the snacking and wait until morning to eat, right? Like let's, let's see if we can get 12 hours without eating food. If you're going to the refrigerator in the middle of the night, stop it. Right. I know some people are like, really? That happened? Yeah, that happens. So let's stop that. No midnight snacks, no after dinner snacks. Like, let's do this. Let's get our blood sugar level. Let's increase our clarity by increasing the ketones in our body. Let's get fat adapted. Let's get metabolically flexible where your body can flip from burning carbs for fuel and then flip over to burn fat for fuel. And then when you cycle in and out of ketosis, it's an easy thing. You're not going through days of keto transition of keto flu. Let's get you feeling amazing here and now. Let's have you be the role model for your family. Let's have you be the role model for the little people in your life. Let's be the role model for all your extended family, for your community, because we in the United States, in North America, we have got not just a pandemic happening of whatever it is now. We got a pandemic of sick people that are just fat, sick, foggy headed, overweight. Let's change it. One simple step. If all you're doing tomorrow is increasing the, your water intake, I want you to do it. Let's start adding in more good and cutting out the bad and your body's going to easily create and crave more healthy habits. You've got this. Did you like that episode? If I may ask you a huge favor, I would love it if you went on over to Apple Podcast and gave us a review. I personally read each and every one of them as they come in, and I am always inspired by your feedback. So I would be so appreciative if you did that. And here is the legalese. All content provided by Dr. Lisa Olszewski and her guests in her programs, including this podcast, her website, summits, and other platforms, is for educational and informational purposes only. Always seek the advice of your physician or another qualified health provider before you make any changes to your health routine, especially related to this content. Ask your physician questions about medical conditions. No statement has been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and products mentioned or discussed in these programs are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I hear it all the time. How do I get my kids to eat fruits and vegetables? How can I get them to take a multivitamin? Or even for our adults, I hate fruits and vegetables. How do I incorporate some of the great benefits of this? This is why I created the Nourish Super Greens and Super Reds. You are going to love them. They are all organic. You have organic green blend and an organic red antioxidant blend. But what else I love about this... I brought in immune support as well. So we have such amazing superfoods, all of the different mushrooms that are in there, along with digestive enzymes. And you can just mix it into your smoothie. You can mix it into some water, but it tastes good. There are no added sugars. You're going to love it. So just click the link below or go to drlisao.com and click the shop button.